we just read the book of Proverbs, try to apply it, and ignore the rest of the Bible, that's a fail. But if instead, in light of what Christ has done for us on the cross, the idea that our righteousness comes from Christ, we look to him, and then now, as part of our sanctification, as part of our desire to follow Christ and be a disciple, we come back to Proverbs and like, "Mm, this is good, I wanna apply this, I wanna live this out, I wanna have that empirical righteousness that is evidence of that imputed righteousness. Now, that's where the book of Proverbs can really take on life. Welcome back to Footnotes with Dr. Tony Caffey. I'm your host, Adam Castellino, and of course, with me as always is Pastor Tony. It's good to see you again, Tony. Hey, Adam. Let's talk Proverbs 10. Chop it up a little bit, huh? That's right. So we've finally reached the part of Proverbs where it's like these bullet points of Proverbs by Solomon, um, wise sayings, and you did a really clever work of grouping them together. We looked at Proverbs 10, verses 1 through 16, and you grouped them up, I believe, in three categories. Yeah, I'm following the lead of a few scholars. So Bruce Waltke has uh, a framing of these proverbs into groups. Mm. So he doesn't see them as just kind of random, you know, scattershot kind of things. Uh, Darren Garrett also in his commentary, the NAC commentary has some, uh, is it Dwayne Garrett, um, groups them similarly as well. So Mm -hmm. I'm I'm following their lead, but but also I, I did this, Adam, and we've kind of encouraged this in the Preacher's Guild, I took a blank copy of Proverbs 10 through 31. So I took out all the numbers, took out all the the kind of the formatting that we have in a typical Bible, and just put it on a Word document where it's just text. Yeah. And I tried to find connections and groupings and, and sections. So I had some success with that, but mm. some of it was a struggle too, because I did see some randomness to it. So the more we go along in this, it'll be probably harder and harder for me to think through the groupings. But right. but let's see. I'm, I'm actually influenced quite a bit. There's a footnote in my manuscript by the words of Kathleen Nelson, and she was talking, Kathleen Nielsen, she was talking about how you know, we should respect the way in this in which this came together mm-hmm. and how it, it was put here and and think through what she uses the word swirl, how these all swirl together mm-hmm. in certain ways and not instead just gravitate to the ones that we like or just yeah. group them together. Like, let's take all the ones that talk about money and bring them together and mm-hmm. have a sermon on money. I think there's value in that, but but let's Let's respect the intentionality of the way that this was put together yeah. and try to to make sense of it as we work through the book. Yeah. And I can echo what you're saying with that method for those who might have never thought of that before. If you're preparing a sermon or just want a, a kind of a unique way of looking at a chapter, removing the titles, removing like the, the numbers and just looking at it as a block of text kind of challenges you to look at it as a text. Yeah. Because we're, we're, we're so used to like pulling out, you know, John 3.16 wonderful verse, but in the context of that whole chapter, it resonates in a different way. So that could be a fun thing to do for those of you who like to do in-depth study. Try that out. We did that with Esther because yep. we're going to be preaching Esther here mm-hmm. pretty soon. I think we did that with with uh, uh, James, James yeah. as well. Yep. And, you know, I appreciate our modern-day Bibles, the way that things are structured mm-hmm. and the numbering so we can all be on the same page. Yep. But there's there's value as well in kind of taking all that out and just reading it Reading it, if I can say it this way, like like the way Paul's churches read it initially. There were yeah. no chapter divisions. There were no verses. There was just the text. Yep. And um, there's value in that. Yeah. So moving through the text, um, your first grouping was verses 1 through 5. 
And your your whole theme in this passage was the way of the righteous. Mm-hmm. And your first point was the righteous obtain wealth honorably. And so in those first few verses, we see that he's talking about wealth within the context, you know, of hard work versus right. laziness, yep. slothfulness. Um, and you made an interesting statement that the Proverbs are like hard candy. Mm-hmm. If you try to just crunch through them quickly, you know, you're going to get a toothache, but you have to kind of <laughs> let them kind of do its work yeah. inside of you. Yeah, that's a Tim Kellerism. Mm. I, I think he probably stole it from somebody else. That's what <laughs> pastors do. They just yeah. steal just analogies from other people. Yeah. Um, but I think it's a helpful analogy because mm-hmm. the idea of the truism is there's a, a general truth that is, mm-hmm. is being captured here. But if you squeeze it too hard, it's like a bar of soap. You squeeze, mm. squeeze a bar of soap too hard, it squirts out of your hands. Yeah. You can't do that. You can't absolutize it as mm. a promise. Instead, Solomon, as a wise man, is looking out on the world, and he's saying, all things being equal, typically this is what happens. You work mm-hmm. hard, you get rewarded. You don't work hard, you get punished. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's true. You, even you and I, in our modern-day American world, would say that's, that's true, even though we know there are mm-hmm. anomalies and exceptions yep. to that. Yeah. Speaking of, we talked about, you know, ill-gotten gain, you know, sometimes does benefit people for a time. Yeah. And I remind of a story I recently heard about someone who's trying to like worm their way into the upcoming election by throwing out all these lawsuits to kind of stir up trouble. All the lawsuits failed, but then it turns out this guy got pinched by the IRS and the FBI because for years he was running a tax scheme where he would advise other people to lie to get a bigger refund. He was doing this for years, not just with him, but with hundreds of clients. And then finally, it caught up with him. So like, he, like if someone would get $300 a refund, they'd lie and get 1000 So for a time, it looked like it worked out. And he was benefiting other people, but now he's in big, big trouble. We got Ponzi schemes, too, yeah. with people who go to jail for that. We have you know, big brokerage firms and uh, mutual fund managers who, who get caught doing shady things and mm-hmm. going to jail. We have... Uh, you know, as well, corporations that fall, who cook mm, the books. Yep. And that doesn't mean that there aren't some people that succeed, mm-hmm. even though they're, uh, and, and maybe even succeed long-term, maybe even retire on the wealth, <laughs> you know, move to, to you know, somewhere in the Caribbean and, yeah. and are able to capture all of their wealth that they was ill-gottenly gained. But um, that that's not a normative thing. Typically, mm-hmm. People go to jail. Typically, people get caught. Um, and when you're in a world uh, or a government where everything is turned over on its head, mm. where only the wicked people uh, prosper and then the hardworking people suffer, that's when you got bigger problems. You got a bad government. You got a bad system, mm. and that unfortunately exists in our world as well. But that doesn't. I guess that's the point. That doesn't violate the the reality of what Solomon is looking at, mm-hmm. especially if you think of it as a as a father preaching to his son. Yeah. He wants his son to be a man who doesn't profit with ill-gotten gain, even if it does end up being successful for a time. He mm-hmm. wants his son to work hard, to earn a living, to have the kind of work ethic that, that mm-hmm. profits him. Absolutely. So this might be more of a curveball, 
But the last verse, verse 5 says, He who sleeps in harvest is a son who brings shame. And when I think of harvest, I immediately thought of John 4, where Jesus says, The harvest is plentiful and the laborers are few. Do you think there is a connection there spiritually, or am I just making random associations? I think the, uh, in the ancient world, the draw to, to the agricultural world for mm-hmm. analogies mm-hmm. is just that's where they went. Yeah. Like, I guess in our modern day world, we use sports analogies all the time because we're obsessed with yeah. sports, right? So you even said curveball. Like, yeah. we don't even know it's we do it in sometimes. There. Yeah. So in this world, whenever you're trying to extract something mm-hmm. in terms of a principle or an analogy, this is probably more of a principle, a real principle here, because mm-hmm. there actually were harvests yeah. that sons could sleep through. And Jesus is... Uh, Usage, it's more of an analogy for, you know, preaching the gospel, making disciples, you know, calling the lost sheep of Mm -hmm. Israel in that case to follow Jesus. So um, I I think that's just your go-to source for Mm -hmm. all things uh, principle or or analogy. Let's go to the agricultural world Mm. because people know it. Most people were farmers. Most people had access to, you know, farms, seeing them, or Mm. in some cases the... Is it husbandry? Is that the word for like goats and cows and so forth? Like, I think so, yeah. But uh, that so that's that's what they would use in order to make their points. Cool. There so, are sports analogies too in the Bible. Yeah, Paul. Really? Paul talks about oh, the Olympics right. and running, the, and running, and so wrestling. That's and why I use sports analogies because yeah, Paul, Paul did, did it. it. Yes, of course. That's why we do it. Um, so as we moved on through verses six through eleven, your your point was the righteous employs speech judiciously. And we see a theme woven through these verses about the righteous and their language. And of course, twice uh, Solomon writes, the babbling fool will come to ruin. Um, And then you mentioned this, the first verse, verse six says, blessings are on the head of the righteous. And you had said, blessing, these kinds of blessings are meant to be, or at least I think I connected what you said, blessings are meant to be shared. It's a and we see that in this passage. It's not just, I'm righteous, give me, give me, give me, give me. It's the righteous blessed specifically through what they say. Yes. And even in the following verse, the memory of the righteous is a blessing. Mm-hmm. We see that, you know, here's a person who, as I understand it, is dead. And yet the mm. blessing of what he received is being passed yeah. down to as a heritage mm. to his children, his grandchildren. And so I, I think that's the nature of blessings. There's a couple different words that are used for blessing in, in Hebrew. Um, and I think both of them have the idea of God's favor upon you, whether it's wealth or wisdom or knowledge or insight. Mm. And that is not just kind of a, a self-inflating kind of, let me show off how much I have. But instead, it's it's meant to be shared. It's meant to to overflow to others in generosity. Mm. For somebody, uh, you know, to use the New Testament language, he who's been given much, much will be expected of him. Right. So I, I think that still is true today. I have shared with people in my own life who I have seen to be uh, intelligent and skilled, whether it's in labor or in educational matters. And I'll I'll say, you know, you've been given a lot. You know, mm. God expects you to use that yeah. to bless others and to benefit others. Don't just hoard that, mm-hmm. but instead uh, use it for for God's glory. And that's an Old Testament principle that goes right into the New Testament. 
Absolutely. And I've noticed recently, like the memory of the righteous is a blessing. In recent things I've read from, like, apparently the Jewish people still use that as a phrase about someone who dies to say, may their memory be a blessing. And I've read that recently and I thought, that huh. sounds so familiar. And it's right here. Um, and there's in this interesting contrast, of course, the babbling fool. And there's, it's so ironic because a wise person, you want them to share a lot because you want to benefit from their wisdom. You want to benefit from their years of experience. And, and, and a wise person, as we've talked about in the past, you just, there's just something about them you want to hear from them. But they're the ones who are more likely to be reserved and hold their tongue because that's wisdom itself. But the babbling fool is someone who's just like, blah, 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 blah. And it's just, I don't need to hear any of this. And it's so ironic about how that, um, if I could use that word, if that's appropriate, the contrast between those two. It is. And this is going to come up a lot in this book. We're going to, you know, we're going to, I'm an extrovert. I'm not sure what you are, Adam. (laughs) You said omnivert, but, um, you know, the the book of Proverbs is hard on extroverts. Mm. It's hard on those people who process things out loud like Mm -hmm. I do, or people who talk for a living like I do. (laughs) And it really has uh, forced me to think through an economy of words, Mm. of being more judicious with my speech. You know, at elders' meetings, I can be, uh, as an example, very verbose, Mm -hmm. and I've got to dial that down. I want to draw out in small groups the people who... Mm. uh, talk less and have more to say, and I want to talk less. So um, I think that's something that comes with... Whenever I see the babbling fool, I think inevitably of young people, young kids, and Mm. teenagers who are just like, blah, 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 blah. (laughs) And that's just kind of an adolescent thing. So I I don't fault them for that, because that's something that they're they're processing and their Mm. childishness. What's really sad is when you have a 45-year-old person or older who acts and behaves like an adolescent, who's mm. constantly talking, never listening, never processing, never learning, but just constantly kind of trying to elevate himself or herself and, and trying mm. to, um, you know, drive the conversation, control the conversation. Those types of individuals, the older they are especially, are pretty tedious to spend time <laughs> with. and. And the value of interaction with them isn't great. And Solomon's mm-hmm. saying, essentially, don't be like this. Be yeah. righteous in your use of speech and use it for the benefit of others mm-hmm. and not self-inflation. Yeah. Yeah, and the good news is you can learn to do that. I mean, I remember when I was a teenager, I was more introverted than extroverted, but there, I had my moments where I just couldn't shut up. And <laughs> It may have been like genuine enthusiasm, like you said, sharing something or learning something. And I got myself into trouble from time to time because I said something I shouldn't have or it just came out wrong. And there was a process of growing up where I learned, you know, as James said, and he, James is like the New Testament Proverbs, be slow to speak, quick to listen, slow to anger. And so you can learn that. Yeah. For those who are listening are like, man, am I like that? Well, it's, it's something you can put into practice by God's leading and help, like, want to say something, but let me hold my tongue. Let me listen to what this person has to say. Let me ask questions rather than just throw out my opinion. And over time, you can cultivate that kind of maturity, that kind of um, practice. Um, but yeah, in counseling, that's, that's a big thing we have to learn to manage because we have people coming in who are in a position where they need care and ministry. And there's people like that who'll just talk, 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 and you have to know how to be like, okay, let's pause 
let's work through this. Um, but yeah, you can learn that, thankfully. I think marriage dynamics, too, could play into this because mm. typically opposites attract and you'll, you will have somebody who talks more than the other. And so they have to learn communication styles. I think in marriage, too, uh, Adam, you know this, you have to learn to be a good listener. If you're, mm-hmm. you know, nobody, nobody wants to be married to somebody who's a bad listener mm-hmm. or somebody who cuts them off or somebody right. who's like always, you know, men are the worst at this, always solving their problems <laughs> instead of being a good listener. Mm-hmm. You know, dear, let me just solve your problem for you. Your problem is, you know, no wife wants to hear that. Mm-hmm. They're like, why don't you just listen, listen and, and be attentive to what I'm trying to share yeah. at this moment. So I think, um, I, I'm glad you utilize James, because I think James is very much advocating for, Mm -hmm. within the church, be good listeners, be people who are engaged, be people who are teachable and who have a a genuine interest in others and aren't Mm kind of selfishly always looking to self-aggrandize. We've done this before. We probably do this a lot, talk about how marriage can be used in this way. And so it is amazing reflecting on it in this time, how God uses marriage to mature us yep. in these ways. And it's, God can still do it if you're not married. Don't worry. God is at work in your life. But marriage is such a valuable matrix, if I could use that word, for God doing these things. And then what you learn through that, you could apply to other areas of your life. So it's the crucible of our sanctification. Yes. Absolutely. And, you know, you get married and you're like, boy, this is challenging and I'm way more selfish than I realized yeah. and I need to change. Yeah. And then, and you're like, I, I can't be stretched even, even any farther than this. And then you have a kid and you're like, boy, I haven't even learned <laughs> yeah. to die to myself yet. <laughs> it's great. God's so good at coming up with these ways of, of working in our life. Um, so the final point we looked at uh, verses one through five, six through 11. Now, 12 through 16, we didn't go through the whole chapter that's coming up, but 12 through 16, your point was the righteous walks securely. And that's such a wonderful um, truth that we see in Scripture, especially in our day and age when there's so much uncertainty. We don't have to fear the way the world fears because uh, the righteous, the wise, have the security that the unwise don't have. If there is a little bit of randomness in this passage, it is in these verses. And I I did fixate on the idea of a rich man's wealth being his strong city. And obviously that's something that we would call a truism, Mm -hmm. but we need to be careful with that. There's other statements in the book of Proverbs that warn us against trusting in our Mm -hmm. wealth. But if you follow the flow of thought, there is a, you know, you fear the Lord, you work hard, you earn wealth, and that wealth protects you mm. from being vulnerable in certain ways. That was true in Solomon's world. That's true in our world. Um, it doesn't protect you from everything, yeah. and it, it can slip through your fingers totally mm-hmm. in our modern-day world. But you know there is a sense of security that comes from not being in debt, let's say. Yeah. There's a security that comes from having you know, a nest egg or having uh, a little bit of margin in your bank account, a savings account where you can draw from if you go through six months of unemployment or mm-hmm. whatever. So so I, I think we can still extract, yeah. going back to the hard candy reference, something from this that's valuable in how we handle our finances, but don't, don't bite down too hard on this or else mm-hmm. you're going to end up in a bad place. Absolutely. And I find it interesting, in verse 15 is where he says that a man's Wealth is his strong city. And the, immediately the next verse, he says, the wage of righteousness leads to life. So yeah. before we get too far thinking that 
wealth is the goal. He goes back to righteousness yep. and says the gain of the wicked to sin. And of course, you tied it all together really well because it's so easy for someone who's not familiar with the whole gospel or the gospel itself that, oh, if, I, if I'm just righteous, if I work hard, then I'm righteous, then all this applies to me. And of course, you brought it back to this is how a righteous person lives, but this is not how we become righteous. Our righteousness comes from Christ. Yeah. And, you know, this passage here, the wage of righteousness, immediately makes me think of Romans. The wages yeah. of sin is death, but the free gift of God is life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Um, so to tie it all together, I think it's worth us saying that we aren't righteous because of what we do. No matter how hard we work, no matter how hard we try to apply Proverbs to our life, this big issue of sin can't be washed away on our own. But Jesus came, he took our sins on the cross, he rose again so that we could be righteous by putting our faith in him. And that's when this becomes immediately applicable to us. Well done, Adam. Way to <laughs> theologize. Love the incorporation of the meta narrative there and, and how we, we look to that. I, th I think we should define the different kinds of righteousness because yeah. Paul, Paul really is talking about a spiritual righteousness that makes us right or mm -hmm. uh, acceptable before the Lord. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Solomon is dealing really with more of a, in the way that God cr created the world in our, on this side of eternity, how we can be right, even relative to one another yeah. and like not wicked. Day-to-day -day life. Day-to-day -day life, absolutely. And and so there, there's a common grace approach to that where mm -hmm. you could say, you know, a Muslim in another context could read Proverbs as they do and apply it and say, I want to live mm. righteously, but they're not going to have the righteousness that makes them acceptable before the Lord Absolutely. for eternity. So, uh, and then I, I did mention, and, and I want to get back to this mm -hmm. because I, I think I'm going to use this quite a bit in the book of Proverbs, the idea of reading it backwards, mm -hmm. the idea of, okay, we don't come to Proverbs looking to find justification before the Lord for why he should save us. If we yeah. do that, we're going to go straight to hell. Mm -hmm. If we just read the book of Proverbs, try to apply it, and ignore the rest of the Bible, that's a fail. Mm -hmm. But if instead, in light of what Christ has done for us on the cross, mm -hmm. we we accept the principles that Jesus laid down, that Paul reiterated, the idea that our righteousness comes from Christ, we look to him, and then now... In light of that, as part of our sanctification, as part of our desire to follow Christ and be a disciple, we come back to Proverbs and like, mm, this is good. I yeah. want to apply this. I want to live this out. I want to have that kind of empirical righteousness that is evidence of that imputed righteousness. Yeah. Now, that's where the book of Proverbs can really take on life. Absolutely. And can be exciting even as we apply it. Not because we're trying to earn favor with God, like mm -hmm. I'm going to try to be righteous and obey Proverbs, but no, yeah. I have favor with God in light of what Christ has done. Now let's obey this in in a way to please Him. Yep. That's when life gets exciting. Amen. And that's a good distinction to make because there might be people listening who might default in the wrong way. Yeah. So uh, any final thoughts on this passage as we wrap up? No, righteousness is the theme that will continue in this chapter. Mm -hmm. So we'll look at it again yeah. this Sunday. And, you know, the word there is just replete, is that the right word? In chapter mm. 10, uh, tzedek or tzaddik, righteousness, the righteous mm. one, the righteous, the righteous. Yeah. So uh, so we'll, we'll get into this a little bit more, but I, I do want to say, like, righteousness is an aspect of Hebrew wisdom. Mm. So it's not, it's not a wisdom that's divorced from righteousness, or right. it, they're not like two radically different ideas. Like I'm a, I'm a wise, unrighteous person. You know, mm. I'm the 
Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who's very intelligent <laughs> and wise, but I, I live a totally, you know, reprobate lifestyle. Like that is not Hebrew mm-hmm. wisdom at all. Yeah. Hebrew wisdom is incorporated within that, uh, is the fear of the Lord, mm-hmm. is a kind of righteousness that flows from that. So I... You know, some people might be a little hesitant to preach that because you do have these complications with mm-hmm. the Paul's view of righteousness and how does wisdom and righteousness work work together. I want to explore that more. Wisdom, yeah. Hebrew wisdom has that kind of ethical quality to mm-hmm. it, which which makes it really rich and a nice contrast from the other kinds of wisdoms in this world where where in some ways they're they're immoral yeah. or amoral. And that's, that's not the kind of wisdom that I want or desire. That's right. Neither do I. So thank you once again, Pastor, for being here. Uh, thank you all for watching every episode, as well as the sermons are available on this channel. See you next time.